welcome to Bitch Talk, booze and interviews straight from the heart of San Francisco. This is Erin. You can find us at bitchtalkpodcast.com. You can also find us at our new home at bff.fm. Uh, this is going to be a fun conversation. I got to uh, interview the director of the upcoming documentary coming out called Ask Dr. Ruth. His name's Ryan White. I got to see this film uh, when it premiered at Sundance a few months ago, and I loved it so much. And Dr. Ruth was actually in the audience and helped with the Q&A. Um, she's maybe four foot seven, and she will be 91 in June. And man, she is kicking ass still. So uh, I hope you enjoy this interview with Ryan. I got some really good time with him. So I'll see you on the flip side. We are here in uh, downtown SF right now with the director of Ask Dr. Ruth, Ryan White. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, I have to admit, I saw the screening at Sundance. Oh. Yeah, and was that the world premiere at Sundance? Yeah, were you at the first one yes. where Dr. Ruth was yes. there? Yes. Yeah, that was the world premiere. So um, it was so exciting to sit in that audience and, and watch the film unfold. Um, and I was laughing, I was crying. Um, and then they introduced you. And I was not expecting a tall um, Caucasian male to be directing this film with so much heart and love. And then Dr. Ruth came up. <laughs> and started kind of conducting the Q&A herself. But I wanted to ask you first, how did this opportunity come to you? Or did it, um, was it pitched to you? Or did you seek it out? Uh, kind of in between. So I'm a child of the 80s and 90s. So uh, of course, I grew up with Dr. Ruth in my household. Um, and to your point earlier, I also grew up raised by my mom and grandmother, uh, which there, is why I'm deeply go. interested in the stories. Um, almost all of my films have been about um, women, um, including this one. Uh, but a few, two years ago, I got a phone call from a producer saying, you know, Dr. Ruth has always said no to documentaries, but I feel like I have her interested. Uh, would you like to have dinner with her? Mm. Um, the next morning I was on a flight to New York to have dinner with her because I think everybody would say yes to that opportunity. You know, and Dr. Ruth's uh, television career kind of wrapped up in the mid 90s. Like she chose to, le to leave television when talk shows became much, much more um, exploitative and sensational. She didn't want to be a part of that. So I didn't really know where Dr. Ruth had gone as far as a public figure. Um, you know, I now know she never went away, that she was everywhere and she was still teaching university classes and publishing dozen, dozens of books. Um, but I didn't know that. And so at that dinner with her, she was 89 at the time. She's now about to turn 91, mm -hmm. um, is when I learned all about her backstory. So I think we all know the famous, uh, probably the most famous American sex therapist part of Dr. Ruth, but she didn't become that until she was in her mid fifties. So before that are 55 years of obstacle after obstacle, probably the most harrowing survival story. I think of maybe any living public figure right now, um, that I became deeply interested in telling. Um, and at that dinner, she decided, um, that she felt like it was finally time to do it. Um, and so I dropped everything. I had other projects going and I said to my producers, we have to carve out time, uh, to do this. Uh, and thank God we did cause it was the most fun two years of my life. I was going to ask, and was her family completely on board as soon as she said yes, or how did that process work for you? It's interesting you ask that because the rule at the beginning was you can't talk to my family. 
Interesting. Um, that, you know, I'm the woman who talks about erections and orgasms, <laughs> and I've never wanted my family tied to that reputation. They mm-hmm. have their own lives, their own careers. Some are, you know, her grandchildren um, are mostly in college or even ones in high school. Um, and so she never wanted them, unless they chose, to be tied to the public persona of Dr. Ruth. Um, And so that was the rule at the very beginning. And um, me as a documentary filmmaker, I kind of love those types of rules because then they're a challenge to try to uh, persuade somebody why it's worth it. And I think... um, You have to sell them. (laughs) Yeah. And I think if you're an ethical filmmaker, for the most part, you're doing it for good reasons. And at some point, um, Dr. Ruth came to the conclusion that um, that her family's view of her would be an important part of the documentary. So the first time I met the family, which are her two kids and her four grandkids, and, and both of her kids are married, um, so her two children-in-laws, uh, they invited me to go to Switzerland with them. They were going on family vacation um, to Switzerland, which is where she ended up after the Nazis took power in Germany. She ended up in an orphanage in Switzerland. So it was a pretty full-on way to not only start shooting with Dr. Ruth, because that was one of our first shoots, but to also get to know an entire family who are understandably protective of their mom um, and want to make sure that if a documentary is being made, that it's not, you know, going to be anything non-representative of their mom. Um, but now, I mean, I, I adore her family. I think you've seen the film. Her kids and grandkids are all a part of the film. And I think their perspective on Dr. Ruth as someone who went through such a painful past and is relatively shut off from that painful past mm-hmm. um, was immeasurable to get to have her daughter and son weigh in on what it was like to have a mom who never talked about what she went through. Because I think, ironically, most people would think Dr. Ruth, so talkative, so loquacious, you would think she talks about this from morning till night. And And a therapist, right? And a therapist, ironically. um, And a relationship therapist. Uh, You would think that she's in tune with all of her, the emotions of her past. And it's not something that she likes to touch or has ever really touched in her lifetime. Mm -hmm. Um, Of the stories that she told you at that dinner, what, what were the most surprising to you or enlightening? Um, well, I found out at that dinner that she had kept all of her diaries from her childhood. And so as a filmmaker, you're constantly doing the calculations in your head of, you know, I knew the archival from the 80s and 90s was going to be amazing because I grew up watching that. Um, I knew right when I met her that the footage of her as an 89-year-old and 90-year-old was going to be amazing because the woman doesn't stop. Uh, well, she wanted you to catch her on film Walking Fast. Walking Fast. <laughs> She's still favorite. teaching two yes. university classes. She published three books while we are making the film. The woman does not stop. Uh, and so I knew that that was going to be very lively. But when I, f- I knew, and I knew the past was so harrowing, but I was nervous about how we would bring that to life. And once I found out that Dr. Ruth had kept all of her diaries from the age of 10 till 25 years old, and that we had her real voice day to day talking about what she was going through, you know, as she left Nazi Germany, as she ended up in an orphanage in Switzerland, as as World War II ended, and she ended up being sent to Palestine, the Israeli War for Independence, all of these things where we could go back to the dates and read what she was writing. Mm -hmm. Um, For as a filmmaker, that was that that was a slam dunk. I knew that I was on board then because it was the third part of the story. You know, I knew we had the 80s and 90s. I knew we had the modern day. 
but knowing that we could be that accurate and faithful to her with her past, I, I knew that I was signing on to work with her. And was she keeping those diaries and everything just to keep them? Or was it sort of like, well, maybe someone will be making a documentary or writing a bio or something? I mean, I definitely don't think it was that calculated because, as I said, Dr. Ruth didn't become famous until she was 55. So I don't think she ever thought anybody would be writing a book about her, making a documentary about her, um, you know, for the 48 years she kept those diaries um you know i i I like to joke i use the word hoarder she uses pack rat (laughs) Um, but if you go in her apartment it's a treasure trove of things um what did you not shoot i want to know can you talk about it a little bit oh we have thousands of things in her house that we did shoot that didn't make it into the film because not only does she keep everything everything has a very intense meaning to her Mm -hmm. so we actually had to finally start saying like Dr. Ruth, we love like your miniature tchotchkes, but now we have to start <laughs> filming something else because otherwise she would she would pick up things all day and tell you the two hour story of why that thing is important. <laughs> um, so some of them make it into the film, but we could make a whole nother sequel just of Dr. Ruth tchotchkes and, That's and things a show. that she's- <laughs> That's a YouTube show. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Or that... TLC maybe, I don't know. Um, and, and speaking of, um, oh, now I'm, ta- I'm thinking about her tchotchkes. Um, <laughs> The Israel trip, I want to talk about that a little bit. How did that come to fruition? Was that already planned for her to go over there or it was part of the story? No, uh, it wasn't. It, w- it was planned for her to go over there. It wasn't for the documentary. Okay. Um, so I just got very lucky once we started making the film that Dr. Ruth was going on a double trip, one to Switzerland with her family, mm-hmm. which allowed us to film her past of the orphanage that she was raised in. And then she was going to Israel, which she does every year, and she invited me along. Um, And that was probably, I think, is probably my favorite part of of the entire film because it led, well, there's three scenes that I love that came out of that Israel trip, but my favorite one probably is um, that we get to meet Dr. Ruth's first boyfriend, um, who's 90 years old as well and lives in Israel now, and they were two kids who ended up in an orphanage. Both of their entire families were murdered Mm -hmm. and they fell in love at 12 years old and dated, I think, till they were 15. So I got to watch Dr. Ruth go into an apartment in Israel and sit down with her first boyfriend and reminisce for probably four hours. And it's still, when I watch that scene and when I think about it, I still get teary-eyed. I was going to ask, were you sitting there crying? I was. And I'm someone completely cut off from my emotions too. (laughs) But let's talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) Let's not. Uh, uh, Watching the two of them... um, relive the, the the first love for both of them was one of the most special things to witness. And of course, getting to do it with, you know, the world's probably most famous sex and relationship thera- therapist talking about um, her adolescence and her coming into her own sexuality. I was like, this is just gold. Like if I would, I could watch this for hours. This mm-hmm. could be the film itself, just watching them have this conversation. I was going to ask you now after I was thinking about tchotchke talk, going back in my my head and, and my questions here. Dr. Ruth likes to talk to the crew a lot and to mm. you during the film. Was that either frustrating or fun for you guys? Or did you have to f- focus her back in and wrangle her? It's interesting because I've never made a film that really breaks the fourth wall that much. Most of my films, I try to stay, I try to keep out of them and I try to stay, stay like an arm's length from the subject, at least as far as the audience perceives it when they're watching it. Um, 
it was my editors. Um, you know, I had an amazing editor named Helen Kearns, who very early on, and Raj Cabrera, who said, like, this has to be a part of the film. It's the most revealing part of her personality, how she's not willing to pretend that cameras aren't there, which is kind of like the first thing you say in documentaries, right? It's like, oh, we're going to be here, but don't worry about us. Pretend just, we're not here. Yeah, just live your day-to-day <laughs> life. And that's always very awkward for everyone. But Dr. Ruth isn't even willing to pretend to participate in that. So I think it's the opening scene in the film where she's, I think she speaks to four different people on our crew in the opening scene. You know, she's offering cookies to one. Um, she's making sure that one heard her shout out on Alexa, that the Alexa, so Alexa knows who yes. she is. Alexis. <laughs> Alexis. <laughs> yeah. She's asking me if I called my mom, which I heard probably dozens of times a day. Uh, and I think it's probably one of the most parts of the finished film is getting to watch how she interacts with not just the crew, but she's constantly breaking that fourth wall, but also the day-to-day people that she runs into. Like every uh, driver that drives her, she calls him Mr. Uber, even if it's a Lyft. Um, every, she gets that person's life story by the end of the ride. Every driver that we've had for film festivals, even I was in Washington, D.C. with her a couple days ago at the D.C. premiere, every driver is given a ticket to come into the film um, so that they can watch it. And then, of course, as we come out, there's no driver to get her home because the person's coming out with us. Right. Um, but that's how she connects with people. She, it's, it's, it's a genuine, um, real uh, passion for human connection. And I think a lot of that comes from being deprived of all of the relationships in her life that she lost everyone, her family and friends. And so she had to rebuild her entire family. She had to uh, regrow all of these friendships. And so... I think I've never met someone who's so, and as a documentary filmmaker, I kind of pride myself on a curiosity in people, like a genuine curiosity. I've never met someone like Dr. Ruth who's so genuinely interested in the lives of every person she encounters. She's a force. Going back to the Q&A at Sundance, um, I love that she basically ran it, and I love that, she, didn't she introduce every person on the crew mm-hmm. or have them, or want them to talk? Yeah. Want to talk about her um, saying that she wasn't a feminist, mm. and she doesn't talk about politics, but at Sundance, she she announced that she is a feminist and that she was not happy with what was going on in our world today, so I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that now. Yeah. It was a revelation or... Yeah. So Dr. Ruth has never self-identified as a feminist, which is ironic, I think, to a lot of people because she was on the forefront of of a lot of the female sexual revolution, whether that's women's right to choose or consent or empowering female sexuality. Uh, So we have a scene in our film where her granddaughter, who's a huge self-avowed feminist, is talking to her about it. Um, And that was a scene, you know, you mentioned that I'm a a white male director. Uh, I think directors get a lot of credit for being the authors of the film, but you have to remember there's a lot of people around us working on the film. And um, my producer, Jess Jess Hargrave and my editor, Helen Kearns, and our consulting editor, Kate Amend, who's actually made a film about feminism in the Mm. past few years. I let them decide on that scene, how it was edited and whether we included it or not. Because I did it, I, 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 you know, as a, as a man and, and, and a, you know, self-described feminist man, I just didn't know how that scene would be perceived. Interesting. Um, it's a tricky scene. And, I, and I've been really thrilled with how audiences have, have, have uh, latched onto it in some way. Um, to and, your other point. And it's because people assume that she's just a feminist and she's out there and she's radical, 
but she isn't really. Yeah, and as she says, I'm old fashioned, I'm a square, yes. I come from a different generation. Yes. And so, you know, and, and her granddaughter at the end of the scene gets her to admit that she's a non-radical feminist. Yes. Um, and yes. that's kind of that's kind of where they meet in the middle. Um, but Dr. Ruth also, you know, in her in her personal life, of course, she's um, somewhat political. She votes in every election. She takes that very seriously because yes. she was a refugee to the US. In her public life, she's been very apolitical. Um, but it kind of depends on what you define as political, because, of course, all of these sexual issues that have been extremely politicized, whether that's gay rights, whether that's abortion, whether that's consent in the Me Too movement. Um, Dr. Ruth has very strong opinions on all of those. And in fact, I think in, in a lot of ways doesn't get enough credit for having shaped how America sees a lot of those issues. The AIDS crisis is a great example. One of the first people on television talking compassionately about AIDS um, and saying we need to this isn't a gay disease. We need to stop blaming gay people. We need to we need to work on research and a cure. Uh, but she keeps politics out of that public persona because uh, she keeps out electoral politics out of that mm. public persona because she doesn't want to alienate any patient or anyone calling in for advice that might have a political polit political persuasion, religious persuasion. But in the last year, especially, because we've been making this film for two years, so all during the Trump era, um, she's stepped up much more than I ever thought she would. And I think it's it's obvious when you look at it that she's horrified at the refugee crisis and how especially children being taken from their parents at the border has inflamed her in a way that I've never seen in Dr. Ruth in the last mm -hmm. couple of years because that is her story. She was ripped apart from her parents. She's also the perfect American dream story, a refugee to the U.S. who built a life out of nothing. Like Dr. Ruth was a single mom in New York who didn't speak English, working as a housemaid for $1 an hour. And now she's an American treasure. So I hope her story and her participating in this documentary, um, while she's not vocally political, can be very representative in a world where we are, uh, where our where our, our politics are so uh, diminishing of refugees at the moment and immigrants. That her story can stand as a representation um, of how powerful giving those people the opportunity, because she loves America loves it she i've heard her say a million times my story could only have happened in america mm -hmm. um so i hope her story is a reminder to the, the power of refugees yeah i mean this story is it has so many layers because it's not only about her it's about her immigrant story and you left that in there right at the, is it at the beginning when she's going back to her apartment and she's like i'm not going to move from here it's a neighborhood of immigrants yeah i think one one of the most endearing things about dr ruth is she's lived in the same apartment in new york city since the 1950s uh and so, of course, in the 1950s, she was she was barely making any money. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, of course, the woman, I'm sure she will never tell me what she's worth. But I let's, let's <laughs> but just... she'll tell you about other people's worth. <laughs> that you left in about the, the lawyer. Yeah. yeah, she loves to talk about how much people how much other <laughs> other people make, but not, but not how much she makes. Mm. Um, but one of the most endearing things is she's never left that apartment. She's never left Washington Heights, New York, which is was an immigrant neighborhood in the 50s. A, a, a lot for immigrant Jew, Jews that immigrated to New York and now. I think is a very Dominican neighborhood and she loves the mix of immigrants and had no interest in moving downtown into a luxury apartment, even though she could have afforded it mm -hmm. and um, has lived this extremely humble life. And I think a lot of that probably has to do with getting famous when you're already a senior citizen. Right. I think you have nothing to prove. And, yeah. and just you're living her life. 
Yeah, she's comfortable. Yeah. I mean, she's lived most of her life a certain way. Uh, she doesn't. She doesn't need a lot of luxury. I have to beg her to ask for business class tickets because that means I get to fly business <laughs> right. class with her. But she's always saying, "I'm four foot seven. I'm fine in coach." So, <laughs> oh, um, how did her family and her feel about the outcome of the film? Uh, I mean, it's always the most. Or they're still talking about it. Yeah, I mean, the the most nerve wracking part. I think the worst part of making a documentary is the first time you have to show it to the documentary subject. Because I think, no matter how how great the film is, uh, I think, or how how great it makes that person look, I don't think that person can perceive that when they're watching it the first time. I can't imagine. I always say I would never be. I would never subscribe to being in a documentary to giving um, somebody else that much control over how I'm portrayed. Uh, but I think the first time watching that for someone is always very uncomfortable. And I find that moment, because I always show it to my subjects first, kind of one of the hardest days of the entire filmmaking process. Um, and I showed it to Dr. Ruth on a laptop in her <laughs> in her kitchen, which is, you know, one of the main the main locations of the entire film. And I've never spent two hours with Dr. Ruth where she didn't say a word and she <laughs> she held the edge of the table and she leaned in and the entire film played and she watched without saying a word and so I'm thrilled that Dr. Ruth is thrilled with the film. I think the most special thing I've been hearing her say at Q&A's and in the press is that her parents don't have a gravestone. They were they were mm. they were killed in concentration camps. Mm. Her mom, they don't even know where she was killed. They know they, they know now her dad was killed in Auschwitz. So I've heard her say multiple times that this film feels somewhat like a gravestone for her parents finally. And mm. so that is very special to me. How are you not crying the whole entire <laughs> two years of this process? She's so special. The other thing I want to touch on, I know we're, we're running down, out of time, but um, the animation in the film is lovely. Um, can you, you talk about that and, and that thought process on how to put it into the film? Yeah, so I knew, I kind of always saw this film as three worlds. There was the 80s and 90s world where we had an incredible archive of famous Dr. Ruth. Um, then we have 90-year-old Dr. Ruth who's going a mile a minute. Um, and then to me, probably the most compelling part was the backstory. But what I was nervous about, that's her childhood and young adulthood. What I was nervous about was I knew those second and third worlds were gonna be so personal. Um, they were gonna be footage of her that I didn't want her childhood to feel impersonal or to feel at an arm's length. Um, and I was very lucky that she had kept all those diaries. So I knew I had her words, um, but I, w I didn't know how to bring it to life in a personal way. And we began by not animating. We began by using um, B-roll of World War II and the Holocaust and Palestine at the time. And it just felt very it didn't feel equal. It didn't feel fair uh, to the other two worlds of Dr. Ruth. Um, and so we decided to um, animate it. Um, and the animation was done by a wonderful company called Neko Productions, who is like full of global animators, um, which was very important to me because Dr. Ruth's story is so global in nature. And if you see the film, um, the animation is really um, inspired by uh, German and European storybooks from the time. Um, like it's not very, it's not very literal, the animation. It's almost like painter-like. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. And it was very important to me that the animation be, uh, that it looked like her. 
Um, so you actually see the first the first time you see an animated shot, it actually dissolves from the one photograph of, of Dr. Ruth as a child mm-hmm. to an animated version of her. And then you're kind of in that world. Uh, and Dr. Ruth, I, I, I've been thrilled to hear her in Q&A's talk about how much she loves the animation and how important she thinks it was because it allows her to go back to those places. But she didn't have to revisit it all. I didn't have to interview her like crazy. I could use her diaries um, and then I could bring the visuals to life. And I would ask her a lot of questions about the details of the memory. So because when she watched it, I wanted it to ring true to her. Mm-hmm. Um, but it allowed us to recreate that world that she went through without her as 90-year-old Dr. Ruth having to delve too deeply back into it, which she doesn't and understandably doesn't enjoy doing. Yeah. Well, Ryan, what do you want people to walk away with after seeing this film? Well, first of all, I really hope that young people go and see this film because I'm 37 and I feel like, I feel like I'm the cusp. Like People my age and older, of course, know who Dr. Ruth is. Um, but I feel like younger generations don't. Uh, they don't that, that she wasn't on television as they were growing up like she was for me. And I think even me, I grew up thinking she was the funny old lady with the accent saying things I shouldn't be listening to. I don't think I understood the full impact of Dr. Ruth uh, until I started making this film and watching, I mean, I, there are hundreds of times where I've seen people older than myself come up to Dr. Ruth and pull her aside. Um, you know, I'm gay and I'm seeing so many gay men and women come up to her and thank her um, for speaking positively about that part of their lives as they were growing up, you know, secretly listening into it in their bedrooms uh, with their Walkman. By the way, Dr. Ruth gives the Walkman a lot of credit for her success because it allowed people to listen to things secretly uh, in those years that she was on the radio. Um, And the other thing I hope people take away, especially in the political and cultural climate right now, which seems pretty bleak, is that this woman... Uh, probably has the most harrowing survival story of any living person, public figure that I can think of. And the fact that she's still not only going a mile a minute, but with such a smile and with such humor and optimism for all that she's been through, I hope for audiences is a really refreshing um, taste of optimism that I feel like I got to go on that ride for two years with her. And I know that it, that it, that it, that I picked up on some of it. So I hope audiences getting to go in the film, they just get 90 minutes of that taste of Dr. Ruth's spirit that I think is so infectious. Yeah, I want to thank you for this film. I fell in love with it at Sundance and I'm so happy to watch it again. And um, I wish you nothing but success on this film. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks. That was director Ryan White of the film Ask Dr. Ruth. Hope you enjoyed our conversation. Ask Dr. Ruth actually releases in theaters May 3rd around the country, and it will be found on Hulu as well later this summer. So please go and find it and support it. And maybe show a younger person the documentary because I don't know too many young people of a certain age or past a certain age that know who Dr. Ruth is. So please, please watch this with them and uh, introduce Dr. Ruth into their life. She's a special lady. Uh, Just remember, you can find us at bitchtalkpodcast.com, and you can also find us at our new home at bff.fm. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you later. Bitch, please!